Okay. So the Buddha was asked, would it be true to say that part of our training is for the development of love and compassion? And so the Buddha said, no, it wouldn't be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our training is for the development of love and compassion. And so the last retreat, we began our exploration of the Brahma Viharas. We talked about loving kindness practice, and you spent some time during the last number of months exploring metta practice. And this retreat, we're expanding um, to include exploring opening our hearts to suffering, to compassion. And then we'll continue later in the week with um, exploring joy and equanimity. But tonight, I'd like to focus on compassion, karuna, um, as the word is. And it's that um, manifestation of kindness in a situation of suffering, which comes from a really deep sense of oneness with all beings. It's that strong, deep feeling of wanting to relieve suffering whenever we see it around us, a sense of really deep caring. And it's a natural response of the heart. In English, the um, etymological origin of compassion means to suffer with. And that's not how the Buddha defined compassion. He went further and he, it, it might begin with a feeling of empathy or caring when we allow ourselves to feel someone's pain. But the compassion of Buddhism is more than a warm feeling of empathy. Um, it contains the strong motivation to act, to do something about it. Um, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, compassion is a verb. It's that um, active engagement of su- with suffering in the world and this courage and strength and vulnerability and tenderness all combine together as we move out into the world in a response whatever the needs are of suffering beings, there's that action that's taken in whatever way we can find that's appropriate. So it's to step out and embody our caring. That's what compassion means. It doesn't allow complacency in the face of suffering. It takes us into action. And the field of compassionate response is limitless because the suffering around us is limitless especially these days. Without compassion, we can't open into the suffering in the world without getting overwhelmed and falling into either despair or um, wanting to strike out. The fear and the rage and the numbness and the confusion um, get in the way of us being able to see clearly. And we can't respond in an open-hearted way unless there's compassion. And the compassion of the Buddha is balanced with wisdom. And it's the bringing in of wisdom that enables us to see clearly what the causes of suffering are so that we can act. But it's very difficult these days because we're in the midst of this storm of fear and anger and hatred and ill will that's sort of blowing around the planet. 
there's so much suffering and so much um, difficulty all around us. And so I'd like to explore a little bit how we can work with this in a way that will enable us to sail in these storms a little more easily. Some of the blocks to compassion basically are come under two, um, two categories, and the Buddha called them the near and far enemies of compassion. The near enemy is um, harder to recognize because it's close, it's close to compassion. And that usually um, would be some form of pity, whether it's pity being, being sorry for others, sorry for ourselves, sorry for, usually is disrespectful of. It's trying to fix because we can't handle our own pain or the pain of another, so we're driven to keep fixing it. And usually that's endless because very often it's not possible. So because we can't bear to feel the pain, there's a separation. And so there's a separation of us helping them or of them helping us. And it sets up um, an isolation and it's exhausting and endless. And the near enemy can also take the form of overwhelm where we just can't work with it. We just feel completely overwhelmed with grief or with fear or with doubt or confusion. We're really identified with the pain. It's become our pain or it's become another's pain and we're stuck in the identification. And true compassion doesn't come from wanting to help others out because they're less fortunate or whatever than ourselves, but from realizing our kinship with all beings, that we are all essentially the same. We're all interconnected. And so when we're caught in the near enemy, we're unable to see that. We're confused. The far enemy is the opposite. It's when our confusion and our um, and the inability to handle or feel the depths of the pain leads us to strike out. It leads us towards aggression. So really it's either fight or flight. It's one of those two, two ways of being caught by pain and suffering. Our feelings get projected out as cruelty in the far enemy of compassion. This is... Um, a poem from Sam Keane called The Enemy Maker. To create an enemy, start with an empty canvas. Sketch in broad outline the forms of men, women, children. Dip into the unconscious well of your own disowned darkness with a wide brush and stain the strangers with the sinister hue of the shadow. Trace onto the face of the enemy the greed, hatred, delusion, carelessness you dare not claim as your own. Obscure the sweet individuality of each face. Erase all hints of the myriad loves, hopes, and fears that play through the kaleidoscope of every finite heart. Twist the smile until it forms the downward arc of cruelty. Strip flesh from bone until only the abstract skeleton of death remains. Exaggerate each feature 
until human is metamorphosed into beast, vermin, insect. Fill in the background with malignant figures from ancient nightmares, demons, devils, evil. When your icon of the enemy is complete, you will be able to kill without guilt, slaughter without shame. The thing you destroy will have become merely an enemy of God, an impediment to the sacred dialectic of history. So when our response to harmful actions and violence and injustice is more enmity, more ill will, and more hatred. We're buying into the logic of getting even, of settling the score, and of, of perpetuating it. And we can know that that doesn't work. We can know that, and yet at the same time, um, it's very hard. When anyone is backed into a corner, they tend to strike out, either verbally or physically. And we can wall ourselves off from our own hearts with self-judgment, and we can also wall other people out of our hearts when they act in insculful ways. We can shut them out, they become other, they become enemy. It helped me to realize that a lot of our reactions come from a very, very deep conditioning. It's pre-verbal in a way. And the causes and conditions are often intergenerational. They go way, way back. We're not inherently good or even. These causes and conditions have been set in motion over history and are being perpetuated. And the survival instincts are very deep and they get triggered. And it's helpful to kind of have compassion and understanding for that. It's that ego survival that says, me first. Only when I've had enough will I share some with somebody else. And what's enough gets more and more in our culture. We defend the territory of our ego, and it perpetuates the greed and the envy and the hatred. And David Loy has a a term that some of you may be familiar with, we-go, which is the collective ego, where a group of people defends its territory and its rights and more for us at the expense of other. And that blocks being able to have compassion for other in that way. Another thing I found interesting and also helpful Um, are the brain studies that have been done in the last number of years. They've done MRI studies of the brain, and they've had um, volunteers, um, chosen people, to do nothing but talk about themselves. These people didn't know what the study was about, but they were encouraged by asking them about their personal history to go on and on and on about themselves. And there's a certain area of the brain that takes up more um, and it's, I think it's part of the prefrontal cortex, and I can't remember exactly. Um, and that, that area of the brain also is, um, um, lights up more in people who have certain kinds of depressive illness where they've become totally focused on self, 
you know, due to brain chemistry or whatever. It's the same thing. When someone is caught up in just thinking about themselves, this area of the brain is highlighted. And then when they um, did IMRs of people like Mathieu Ricard, the man um, who studied a lot of Tibetan medicine and does a lot of compassion practice, a different area of the brain um, lit up in Mathieu Ricard's brain, especially when he was doing compassion practice. And they found that this was associated with altruistic thoughts. And the self-referential area of the brain was um, very much minimized in Mathieu Ricard. And they found that to be true in other of the monks that they did MRIs. And so they found that by doing compassion practice and meditation practice, you could decrease this self-referential, self-me, um, mine, <laughs> all about me. Um, so it's helpful to see that um, it's workable and it's deeply patterned. So then we're not blaming ourselves for it. We're just understanding this comes from causes and conditions. And we can also begin to do something about it. So this belief that um, we're a fixed, permanent, Self, separate self is, um, is very limiting and really leads to a lot of suffering in the world. And some of you know that even if you've had really deep experiences of emptiness, of transcendence, of interconnection, something can happen. And like that, you're triggered back into the primitive brain. <laughs> you know, it's just there you are identified again and caught in either anger or attachment. It happens so fast. And it takes several different practices to begin to loosen it and give us some clarity about how to work with it so that we can be aware of the emotions and mind states as we're caught in them. And we can also start to illuminate the deep patterns that are hidden, that are kind of feeding all this. And so it takes our mind, both our mindfulness and specific compassion practices. The mindfulness involves being willing to be with the pain, just as it is, to be able to allow the discomfort, allow the reality of how awful it is, not to hide from it. Usually we resist it, and pain times resistance equals more suffering. Whereas the practice of opening to it, however unpleasant it is, however unpleasant, rather than turning away, takes this courageous love of compassion. We believe that emotional pain is bad and we don't want to let ourselves feel it. But it actually is the proximate cause for compassion when we can allow that, and that's what's transforming. So what I'd like to do is just read this this poem, which is about turning towards the pain, and then do a short guided compression exercise with you. So just close your eyes, if you want. If you want to keep them gently open, that's also okay. This um, piece of writing is by Arthur Miller. 
I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread, the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cuts his finger off. Within a week you're climbing over the corpses of children bombed in a subway. What hope can there be if that is so? I tried to die near the end of the war. The same dream returned each night until I dared not go to sleep and grew ill. I dreamed I had a child, and even in the dream I saw it was my life, and it was an idiot, and I ran away. But it always crept onto my lap again, clutched at my clothes, until I thought if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, perhaps I could sleep. And I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible. But I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life in one's arms. So just allow yourself gently to be with the breath. And bring your attention to your heart center. Aware of how it feels in the heart right now. Breathing gently into the heart. Releasing and softening in the body. Gently allow into your mind some difficulty you've been struggling with today. Not maybe the most difficult thing in your life, but some difficulty of the body or the mind or the heart. Allow it to come into your awareness. And just saying to yourself gently, I care about this pain. May I be held in compassion. I may not be able to fix this. And I care about this pain. Softening holding it gently. May I be free from pain and sorrow. May I be at peace. See if you can move towards whatever you're experiencing and stay with it. as much as possible without tightening, simply allowing what's here, softening rather than hardening.
I care about this. May I be held in compassion. And now letting that just ease, ease for now, bring into your awareness some way that you judge yourself, or perhaps allow into awareness some part of yourself that you feel shame around or judge, some shadow part. Notice the reactions in the body. Or if that's not alive for you right now, then just the intention to hold those parts of yourself that you judge with kindness. But if you're aware of this quality or this part of yourself, just softly, I care about this fear. May I be held in compassion. I care about this fear or shame or embarrassment. May I be held in compassion. softening the barriers in the heart, allowing ourselves into our own hearts. So you can allow your eyes to open, or you can just allow yourself to stay with them closed. And we're gradually, unconditionally opening to life, just as it is, a little at a time, allowing ourselves to be with what's difficult. Margaret Atwood said, to see the world clearly is to see through tears. When we can open to the pain, it exposes it to the healing powers of love and compassion. It spontaneously loosens the stuck places where we've contracted around and the energy is blocked. And the self-judging and the criticism and the clinging and the fear and the aversion start to fall away. The suffering in the heart is transformed. So the compassion is a purifying force. The hatred gets transformed to love, the greed to generosity, the confusion to clear seeing, (coughs) the resentment to forgiveness. 
when we can explore our body and our mind in this way with an open heart, it's very healing and it brings clarity in our minds. Sometimes the traditional phrases for um, karuna practice, one of the traditional phrases is, may I be free from suffering, or may you be free from suffering. And for some people, um, there's a subtle tinge of aversion in that. Might I get rid of it? Or it's asking permission, please, may I be free from suffering? Um, And so I find the phrases, may I be held in compassion? And even if you're saying the phrase is, may I be free from this pain and sorrow, sometimes it can help to say free with. So even though there's pain and sorrow here, that they're not sticking, they're moving through. May I be free with this pain and sorrow that are here right now. So you use whatever words are helpful for you, whatever feels skillful. When we start extending compassion practice to other people, that's when it gets sticky. We don't always want to include people. There are people in our lives we don't really feel a lot of resistance to. But if we're, we may even want them to suffer for what they've done if they've caused a lot of collective harm. But if we truly aspire for world peace, then when we say, may everyone be free from enmity and ill will, it means all beings without exception. And actually, if you're saying, may everyone be free from enmity and hatred, um, it's easier to say that than it is, may all beings be happy at, at times. So when you're caught and you can't do loving kindness practice because there's so much anger and um, outrage, then it's, it can be skillful to do the compassion practice. May all beings be free from enmity and ill will, from hatred and aversion. So really the way forward is to be able to embrace the other in ourselves, to not project that outward but to be able to embrace that anger and outrage that's in us and um, to embrace the otherness in us, to see ourselves always in the other and to see the other always in ourselves so that we're defined not by by what separates us but by what joins us. When our energy gets frozen, when we're so confused or angry or afraid or full of grief, when it gets frozen often, it becomes frozen into us and them. That's often how it sort of separates out. Um, And we're unable to see clearly because we get lost in the confusion and in the reaction. I like um, the analogy that uh, Pema Chodron uses of an ice cube um, where... um, we think we should crush something to get, we think we need to crush the ice to get the water out of it. 
that it's the bad frozen ice that's getting in the way of us finding water, when really it's allowing the water, the difficult emotions to melt that enables it to move freely. And the answer is, the answer to us getting water is in the ice cubes themselves. So the way through is to learn to relax and melt into it, into what dif- the difficult emotions to stay with the emotional distress, whether it's panic, panic or anger or despair, without that tightening, and to have a compassionate inquiry. What's this about? Where am I caught? What's happening? How is it that I'm stuck right now? And so that we can notice, we can start to face the truth within ourselves. There's this much pain or rage or fear inside of me right now. And I'm so hurt and I'm so angry. And we can bring caring to that. I care about this. And then we can begin to have compassion for the suffering of both the people who are oppressing as well as the oppressed. Compassion doesn't condone cruelty but it doesn't add to it either. Just um, a simple example. Um, some years ago, when I first started practicing medicine, um, a woman came in um, who, who just blurted out to me that she'd been abusing her children. And I was quite young, and I was really shocked by what she was telling me. And I immediately got in, get into protect the children mode, you know, all this stuff that I set in motion to protect the children. And she never came back to me as a physician. And I realized that I'd failed her. What she really needed was for me to have been able to say, it's really hard bringing up children on your own. It must be, you must feel so bad that you're driven to having to hit them. How can I help you? To have been able to see what was happening for her rather than see her through my projection of this is bad. Um, And that's what compassion is, is being able to see that something is going on in each of us that we're drawn to do whatever it is that we do. So one of the things that can help, there are several things that can help, The first is to notice the energy that's pulling us in the direction of doing or saying something. Some of us, we're more more liable to blurt out or act or do when we're really upset. Others of us get paralyzed and don't act. But either way, whether we're the ones who are paralyzed or the ones who are about to just blow it, um, it really helps to stay with just the energy just the energy of that experience without the storyline, as best we can without the storyline, and to notice our attitude. Our attitude, are we accepting what's going on or are we resisting? What are we doing? How are we getting hooked? So in a way, it's unconditional acceptance of this very difficult energy. Whatever it is, we're accepting it unconditionally. And sometimes it really takes using the breath to do that. Then we bring curiosity and interest. We explore, well, what's it like? Rage is like this, the vibration and the intensity and the burning. And hatred or fear is like this. 
Waves of grief are like this. We're being with the difficult energy right inside of it, allowing it to move. We're get, getting familiar with even what unbearable feels like, even what uncontrollable grief feels like. This is what it's like. These waves are coming, and now they're getting smaller, and now they're getting bigger. And then we can also not just look at our body and our heart, but look at our mind when we're curious. What story am I believing right now? Sometimes we're adding an overlay, and the overlay is making us feel worse, or we're adding an interpretation. Or what am I choosing to focus on here? Somebody said something, and we're just focusing on that one thing that they said. What else am I aware of? What else is true in this situation? So we keep letting go of the storyline and coming back to the direct experience of what's actually true in this moment. Then we get to see that it's actually workable. And that builds trust. That as long when we can stay with it in that way, it does start to transmute. It does start to shift and change. The, um, the Tibetan al- analogy is a peak, as of a peacock, and the peacock is said to eat poisonous plants. And from eating the poisonous plants, it transmutes the poison into the gorgeous colors of its feathers. And yet it itself isn't harmed by the poison. And so what we want, we who wish for peace, is that we can we can transmute the poison without poisoning ourselves. So that rage can be transmuted into mirror-like wisdom that sees clearly and can act with the sword of compassion, Manjushri sword, which sees clearly and acts wisely, and yet is able to stand firm without causing harm. One of the ways mindfulness really helps is that rather than seeing difficult mind states as bad, whether it's in ourselves or or others, it sees them simply as states of suffering, as not who we are. So it's easier to allow the energies of anxiety or rage or despair or whatever they are when they are states that are arising. Then they're not me, they're not mine, and they're not permanent. So then we're, we're aware of those three characteristics of the Dharma, that, the th- that, that there's suffering, and that holding on and identifying causes more suffering. Things can pass through when we're not identifying with them as me or mine. And we're able to see the truth of our anger and our greed and our delusion, to really enable ourselves fully to see our shadow. And if we're not identifying with our shadow, then we're not judging or blaming ourselves. We're having the courage to see it clearly and look at it and take responsibility for it. Because we see it as ephemeral, as not a permanent state. And we can also see that it's that way for others. We don't make them into their actions. We see them as doing skillful things, but we don't see them as those actions. 
then the boundaries start to dissolve and the interconnectedness can deepen. So it begins by having a willingness to have a compassionate relationship with difficult parts of ourselves, our shadows. Carl Jung says, those parts of yourself you do not accept will become hostile to you. And they do. So when we can see the difficult energies with compassion and witness them, they start to release. And then there is space for other mind states, mind states of understanding and compassion and love and wise action start to arise naturally. So the importance of embracing the difficult mind states is that they can move through and leave space and for clarity and for the true nature of our mind to shine through. Um, In the Tibetan tradition, again, the analogy is poking holes in the clouds. So we say we can't see the sun because the sun's obscured by clouds, but the sun is always there. It's always shining. And so we need to pause every now and then to allow the holes to be poked in the clouds of our delusion and our confusion so that we can connect with and see the sun that's always there. And that sun, so to speak, that shining nature of mind is present in everyone. And so compassion practice helps reveal that to us. And when we can hold things in softness, the patterns begin to melt and we begin to have forgiveness for ourselves. As I was saying earlier, the habit patterns are really, really deeply ingrained and some of them intergenerational. And to have respect for that. Um, In some of the Theravadan teachings, um, these um, very strong habit patterns of the mind, um, sankharas, um, the analogy is drawn of making traces in water, sand, and stone. And some of them are just like a trace on water. They disappear and we can, they dissolve quite easily. Others of them are like making a pattern in sand. It takes a little more practice to really loosen those patterns. But some of the very deep intergenerational ones are in stone. Some of the patterns from our childhood are in stone. And it's, they may not change in our lifetime. <laughs> Certain triggers that have come from our childhood, our background, our parents, or whatever it is, may not change. There's certain ways that I have a fear of anger. There's intergenerational fear in my family because my mother was in Manchester during the bombing. She was looking after children in, in you know, shelters when the sirens went off. And my father's family is Jewish and from Europe. And so there are intergenerational fear in our family that gets triggered in me at certain times. And all I can do is respect it when it gets activated. Sometimes if I'm um, working with a group of people, um, doesn't happen very often, and someone gets very angry. And if the anger is directed at me, I freeze. And I can't think what to say. And I hate it. And afterwards, I'll be able to think what to say. But at the time, there's not a thought 
that goes through. It's like being in a blank room. And if I can breathe and take care of my body, the more upset about it I get, the worse it gets, the less likely I am to be able to speak. Um, and so each of us has similar things. Um, some for, you know, that work in different ways depending on our background and what we've experienced and what our, our um, culture has experienced, the ways we've culturally been conditioned. And they, those, those kind of sankhara go very deep. It's like they're in stone. And so we need to respect and honor each other and those places in each other and have compassion for each other when those places get touched. And for some of us, we can feel when we're caught in those places, we don't know what to do. And some, I, I felt, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck in this. Um, I have a similar pattern right now, another family story, with um, my sister. We both have some similar trauma in our family, and right now we're having a very bad, hard time with each other. And so I get hooked. I find myself getting hooked. And all sorts of unreasonable things come up in my mind. I don't know what to do in the situation, but I know what not to do. <laughs> And that's not to say some of the stuff that's surfacing due to various object relations. So at least I know what not to do, even if I don't know what to do. And so it's having patience and humor and gentleness with ourselves when we get caught in these old patterns. Because the pains from the past can define and limit our experience in the present when we lose connection with true nature. If we are connected with our true nature, if we remember and connect with this place that is, as the Buddha taught, our value is unassailable, when we're connected with that, then when the pains from the past get triggered, we might feel sad, feel hurt, feel the old wound, but we're less likely to react from that place. We're more likely to be able to hold it. So the last um, little piece I'll say, because I want to leave time for us to do a, um, um, a com- compassionate activity, is that in compassionate action, as the Buddha taught it, um, it involves several things, other things as well, that are more um, con- practical. And that is, the first one is sangha. That's collective, collaborative cooperation, people working together rather than us helping them, or them helping us. It's a cooperative activity together, which is benefiting and giving learning to all. So that's one way compassion works. And the other is, in order for compassion to action to be effective, we need to be thoroughly informed. We need to bring in the wisdom quality. So for example, the Buddha, um, was aware, and there are two suttas in the Digha Nikaya about this, um, that the cause, he spoke about how the causes of crime and violence and hatred and on so forth was, was one of the root causes was poverty. And so that unless that was addressed, 
Um, and there was compassion for everyone in the kingdom because there were kings then. Unless the conditions were improved, there would not be an end to that. That everyone had a right and needed a place to live, a way of supporting themselves, a way of being educated, and to live in safety. And that if everyone lived in safety and had enough to support themselves, there wouldn't be fear and anxiety. And as soon as the, those other elements come in, the greed or the hatred, then it all falls apart again. So what I'd like to do is um, do a compassion practice. Um, and this is a little more interactive. Because often what helps us open to suffering and open to pain is being able to expose it to the compassion of another. And it also helps us to explore our blocks to compassion um, together. And um, compassion practice really is being there for another, however they are. Having others be there for us, however we are, without judgment. When another is there for you, however you are, even if you're having a difficult time, it's mirroring acceptance. And that person is able to relax and to allow. And then we also begin to see that it's not my pain or your pain. It's pain. It's just pain moving through. It's a universal thing. It's not held by one or another. And we also see that it's not containable. It's not up to me to contain this pain. The pain is uncontainable. The grief is uncontainable. And it's this energy that's moving through. And it's not that I don't have enough compassion to hold it. If I allow my heart to open and to completely break open, there's universal compassion. Or as Sharon Salzberg talks about it, the heart as wide as the world. And so then it's held by all of us. We don't have to each hold it alone. And that's a precious thing. We're all connected then. We're not separate or in isolation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.